So tonight, <clears throat> I'd like to speak about untying the knot of contraction. And I think it fits very nicely around and couples with and extends Christina's talk last night, <clears throat> in which she commented, and I'd like to reinforce that the gladdened mind is at the very epitome of what we, of where our energetic uh, response to uh, all of this hard work uh, will eventually go. But in order for us to come and to arrive at the gliden mind, we must often untat, untie the knot of contraction, of, of uh, contention, of tension and anxiety and fear that seems to surround us in this practice. In fact, that's what we have been doing for the last two or so days. And that is why there has been as much difficulty as there has been in each of our meditations in in this retreat. Not so much that uh, circumstances, although you may not have liked the food or the person coughing next to you, those were secondary to what it is that we brought into the retreat and are releasing ourselves from. And the way that we untangle and the way that we relax uh, is often in uh, by releasing the pain of what we have carried. And that contraction, when we begin to release ourselves within silence, we see that uh, how much difficulty we carry with us. Nothing really has changed over the last couple of days except you've become a little more relaxed. And in the process of relaxation, been willing to release that which has kept you tense. So to understand that this process is really a process of unburdening, unloading. We're not so much traveling in a different direction, but in a direction of release and relaxation. Now, all of us have probably gotten some sense of how much we depend upon comfort in these last couple of days. And I'd just like to do a side commentary to this talk because our dependence upon comfort um, is an almost an epidemic proportion nationally to what the earth can uh, to the amount of resources left on the earth and I think that uh, when you look at the wars that we have created and the fighting and discord that has been generated, much of it has come from our need to continue and perpetuate our comfort. Certainly, I could say that true with the Iraqi conflict. And we don't realize, we think that it's because of the national patriotic movement to do away with one person or another, but and actually, when you look at it, it's our dependency upon comfort. And unless we deal with it on the individual level, each one of us here working, it will never translate 
into a national release and relaxation. We now have the armament, the strength, the force to be able to force disproportionate levels of resources our way, which we will do because of the need that each one of us have to sustain our level of comfort. You can see the more you try to sustain it in your practice, the more you are haunted by its absence. Like a alcoholic, we are addicted and demand our one resource that will allow us to feel pleasure. And it is here that we face that addiction. We really want this thing to turn out well. We would love to have this be as smooth as our belief about it to be, where we could just kind of soothe ourselves. And many of us, really, what we want out of our meditation is a quality of being soothed, being bathed, being warmed. And yet when we sit down, we don't feel that. We don't intimate. We don't sense that that is what this meditation will offer. Because it doesn't necessarily. This is really about untangling ourselves from the need and dependency upon conditions. And where it is that we are contracted, where it is that we contract and draw back in and resist, that is where we are unconscious. And so the process of this meditation is to make the unconscious, that place, those places where we are contracted, conscious so that we can begin to see what we are contracting around and what is motivating that contraction and what is that contraction, the limitation of it, to begin to understand and bring insight into those areas in which we, have, we are in protest to reality. We also begin to understand that that contraction is entirely self-imposed, that it is not circumstantial, that it is not due to the other person next to us, that it's due to our relationship to life. The reason I believe the Buddha never said life is suffering is because it's not true. Life is neutral. It's the mind that suffers in relationship to life. And that is what we're trying to understand, is why we can be living with all of this beauty, with all of this mystery, and be so distraught and lonely. What is it? What, what are we doing to ourselves? That's the question that Buddhism really tries to answer. And he talked, the Buddha talked about three forms in which the mind contracts around reality. And I'd just like to talk about those three ways. He said the first way was, he saw in his first sermon, 
He kind of laid it out. Everything else was extra after his first sermon. He said, you know, uh, there's a lot of pain in life. There's a lot of unpleasantness. There's a lot of circumstances that aren't going to lead, uh, that are inherently unsatisfactory. And that quite likely our mind is going to contract around them. Disease, pain, right? All of the ways that circumstantially life brings forth uh, what we don't want it to be. And he called this the pain of pain. The unpleasant qualities that forever move through and journey through our life with us. It's also the pain of the mind, as you've been watching for these days. You know, the endless chatter, the arising of loneliness and anger and fear. The qualities of, of angst and worry. And that inherent in the mind's relationship to life is going to be a contraction when it plans and, dis- and perceives these unpleasant states, unpleasant circumstances, unpleasant events, Now, what causes that contraction? See, what is the mind doing at that moment? It's not what life is doing. Life is just doing what it does. The mind is creating an alternative reality for itself. It's creating an idea or a fantasy or an image that what is happening in fact simply should not be. And it is so invested in that it should not be that it loses touch with the fact that it is. And when we lose touch, then we're going to be contracted. And so what we're trying to do is to come back into life, not avoid it. When you think life is the mistake and the problem, then your spiritual journey will be as a way to brace yourself or to detach yourself from life. But when you see the mind is the problem and not life, then the solution is in releasing the need for life to be anything other than what it is. And then we can take life on its terms rather than our mental terms, and that is the end of suffering. You know, when I was in Asia, I once, it was in Calcutta, and I got off the train. And across the train station, there was a huge open space with a pile of garbage that was higher than this building. It was about this length and about the height, or a little bit higher than the building. And it was the coldness of winter, and I noticed people having caved, brought, uh, sort of drilled caves into the garbage, 
and were living in the garbage in caves that they had carved out because organically, as it composts, it creates warmth, and they were seeking warmth. Now, that's something in this country we never come up against, that level of misery, that level of sorrow. What we call poverty for most of the world is middle-class living, where many people in the world live in huts made of cow dung and walk a mile for water, which is not usually, usually purified or even very healthy, and have no running water or electricity. And here we squirm because the person next to us might be having a cold or breathing with difficulty. Or the temperature of the room might be slightly altered from our expectation. In fact, I was so touched by it that when I came back from Asia, after having been there a few years, I decided to fast one day a week for, and I did this for quite a while, just so that I could not lose touch with the depth of the sorrow that I had seen. Because this culture doesn't see, I don't see the depth of that poverty in this culture. What I see in place of that is loneliness, is isolation, is separation. Perhaps because of our wealth, we no longer connect or are willing to connect. And our self-reliance and the cultural norms that we follow of independence Another way that we contract around life to create our own misery is around the changing conditions of life. Is the fact that it's not reliable. Have you noticed? One of the shocking truths that if you sit for a while will reveal itself, is the complete unreliability of life. You can't count on it. Many of us have come to this meditation retreat with a certain expectation level. Has it been met? And will it be sustained if it has been met? The need to fix and rest on conditions, to have a place to feel belonging, to have a place under our feet that we can call our own, to try to to rest, to be content within conditions. And we do that by trying to adjust conditions so they fit our very narrow corridor of comfort. 
the room temperature, the food, everything. And our need to struggle endless with with these conditions and how we feel our survival is at stake in that adjustment. And the inevitable grief that arises when those conditions fail, when we aren't able to perpetuate the conditions that we have rested upon, that we rely upon. Because that is the definition of grief. And I think the other disturbing quality of this culture is how much grief we all carry within us the repository of the sadness of the fact that life is not reliable. Because if I can't get the conditions to last, then I can't last. And that realization keeps us forever working to support the conditions, even though we see them falling before our very eyes. The pain of impermanence. And then there is a pain and a contraction around that unpleasantness that is the product of us feeling separate from everything. Have you noticed that one? That one in which we feel distant, which we feel the lack of intimacy, of being connected, which gives rise inevitably to our loneliness, to our sense of isolation. Have you ever felt like you were in the middle of life and yet outside it, kind of watching it? And have you felt the longing of your heart to rejoin it? And the level of pain that we carry in not understanding how to rejoin it. And trying to do it through the arrangement of the conditions of our life. And every time we arrange the conditions only to have them fall flat, creates a new sense of inward agony usually interpreted as self-failure. Sometimes other blame. And how this system that we our mind has set up has failed us in life, which is why many of us find ourselves here looking for a new way. How we cut ourselves off from the very abiding we long for. 
because the way we try to overcome our suffering is the very cause of suffering itself. We seek more definition. We seek more exactitude. We seek better conditions. All of that inevitably faltering and creating more tension and more isolation and more loneliness. And yet that's the way we're set to run. We're not really set to look. We are being driven by forces of the marketplace which tells you that the next set of conditions will make your life happier. So purchase them. And that it's through evaluation and ambition that you will succeed. Through hard work, you'll obtain the money so that you can purchase the conditions for your happiness. The endless need And how much pain, personal pain, personal contraction, drives the spiritual search. Now, it's not all bad, although I'm making it pretty gloomy. I want to catch up, get our attention here. I want to make it so irreversibly true for you that you do not try to seek special conditions in your meditation. And I don't know how to do that except giving you some drama. You have to be completely fed up with trying to arrange your meditation to suit your expectation. Because that's what our life has been about. And if we just bring the strategies of our life onto the meditation pillow, it will be no better than what our life has become. We have to be fed up with that approach. But the situation is not all bad because unless we have felt that pain and the limitation of the strategies that we have attempted, then we would never be ready to come here. And you begin to become very appreciative of your past, no matter how difficult that past might have been, because that past has produced this product, you being here now. And without the stimulation of the pain, quite likely we would not have be we would not be here. So you learn how not to discard pain, negate pain, but to pay attention. It's the Buddha's call. It's the area in which we are most ignorant. It's where we have lost our sense of reference. It is where we have lost our way. That is why there is that contraction. And so what does it need but the light of our attention to see how it is that we have been lost? We're a little bit like small children who are out in the dark. We have a flashlight by our side, but we would rather throw a tantrum at the dark than to use the flashlight to find our way back home. 
This practice is offering you a flashlight. Let let us use it together. Turn it on, which is our attention. And pay attention to that tantrum, to that contraction. Do not try to escape that. Don't try to flee it. Don't impose one of the subtle ways of avoidance of waiting for your pain to end, of trying to circumvent the, the circumstances of your pain. Wait for the bell to end so that finally I can. This really is not a waiting game. It is a game of immediacy. The bell is ringing every moment. It is calling forth our attention every moment. Let us not be lazy and indulgent while the bell is ringing. Because the tendency for many of us is to side with our comfort, to go with that which soothes us rather than that which will inform us. Because it is not just pain on which the mind can contract, but it can also contract around pleasure when it tries to create and maintain and sustain pleasure that inevitably will not last. It is where we contract that we want to look, where there is some sense of being out of alignment with life. It's a very important point to understand that when we talk about go towards the difficult, we're not necessarily meaning the unpleasant. As much difficulty can come from staring at the sunset or sunrise with the expectation of it continuing and the promise and anticipation of seeing it again tomorrow, as from the darkened skies of a thunderstorm where we don't want to pay attention at all. To understand that the contraction is the problem and the contraction is the mind's response to circumstances, either trying to perpetuate those circumstances or avoid them. And that at the heart there is an orientation to circumstances that will allow a complete harmony and alignment. So the spiritual journey is the journey to end that contraction of mind. But first we have to know that there is a contraction of mind. We have to know that we hurt, that we're that we're I there's one there's one kind of key element to this whole thing <clears throat> and that is the element of your interest why would you want to pay attention to your contraction mostly we want to flee it and get to circumstances in which we can feel we can relax and not be contracted So we're constantly looking for the polar opposite of where the Buddha's teaching points. 
But there's one key element that assures that you'll look in the right direction. And that is the understanding that the contraction is self-induced, that you're doing it to yourself, that it's not about the situation, the circumstances, the person next to you coughing. It's about the demands that you're placing on that person in order for you to have the right circumstances, in order for you to relax. That's the problem. Not the coughing. Not the sneezing. We have to look in the right direction for this thing. Then when you make that connection, when you irrefutably see that your life, your spiritual life, depends upon you connecting at that level of discord, you will develop interest in that discord. And the interest is the key element that makes this whole thing work. You can go a long time uninterested because you're trying to play out the theory that you haven't quite gotten it right yet. You haven't quite mastered the right conditions yet in order for that relaxation to occur. That relaxation will not occur or be sustainable under conditions. Am I getting through? <laughs> I, I feel like sometimes I just want to trumpet that one, th- one song, be a one-note teacher. Because it's such an important note. And it's so missed, because so deeply entrenched in us is this need for comfort, this need to be soothed, this need to belong. And it comes in many different forms. It has a psychological manifestation. At some point, you'll get fed up. Because you will have expended all of your strategies. You try to buy our way out. That's what we're trying to do through our affluence. That's why it's so important for us to have 25% of the world's resources when we're 5% of the population. We're trying to buy our way out of pain. Or we try to find happiness around it. Or we try to seek its opposite. That's an interesting one. We seek its opposite. We do that lightning flash. How do we do that? We do it conceptually. We have a problem and we have an answer to the problem. It's a mental answer, but it's an answer. And now I just have to make reality arrange itself to my mental answer. And then I won't have my knee pain. That's seeking the opposite. Or I just deny that I have any problem whatsoever. I like that one. All of our psychological defenses are really around that denial factor. I'm not going to die. 
what is inherently incapable of satisfying, I will prove to be satisfactory. What is inherently incapable of satisfying, I will still seek within that my satisfaction. And so I would like to just give a few pointers to how to work with this contraction. As I mentioned, first we need the ability to recognize that we are contracted. And if an experienced meditator differentiates at all from the beginner, it is that he or she is more subtle in picking up the areas in which he or she contracts and realizing at a much quicker pace than the beginner does the the correct orientation to that contraction. And at some point, it is It is completely, um, when, it ha- when contraction happens, it just is not acceptable. Not in some kind of avoidance way. It's just that right on top, you feel it, that's it. You're there. It becomes, it becomes as quick as the mind's need to find an escape. So the first thing is to recognize where it is that we contract. And the second thing is to be accountable for that contraction. Our tendency, and a very strong tendency, and that's why judgment is so strong in most of us, is that we look outside for the reasons of our contraction. We really believe that it's circumstantial. We really believe that it's in the other. It takes a long time somehow for us to understand that it has nothing to do with the circumstances of life. Nothing. Not not 10%. 0%. Nothing to do. If I gave you a half a percent, you'd go there like a... Christina and I, last year, were teaching at a retreat center that offered a sauna and massage. And they came to us and they said, would you like us to have that as part of your retreat? And both of us like, no, that's not going to be a part of our retreat. It would have made you all love it. (laughs) You would have told your friends, and next year we probably would have had twice the number of people. But something inside of us just will not do that to you. And I felt it equally and strong in both of us. We're not going there. Because we know it's not the way. We know we're teaching something else here. Something much more profound than offering you a good time. And that is to begin to see that we are accountable, totally accountable, 
for our projections. It's so obvious. Where do we think it's coming from? When we're angry, where do we think it's coming from? I mean, there's only a mind and body here in which anger is arising. How could it come from, how could it be induced from the outside? How it is that we can ascribe the cause of our own mental outpouring to someone else is, is beyond me at this point. To say, you make me angry or you make me happy is, I don't, I don't know how I had, I don't know how I lost myself in that, but I know I did. That's how complete and irrefutable this understanding must be. That every emotion, every thought, is ours and ours alone. So we say, okay, well then I'm to blame. If circumstances aren't there, then it's all me. We love that one because it feeds the central core issue that most of us carry, and that is that we're unworthy and inadequate and deserve the blame. But when you look at what the sense of self is, it loves to hold that because it builds itself around that posturing. And without that posturing, what is there? And so we learn not to offer it food, not to just give it what it craves, is some sense of definition, some sense of itself as the cause, the original cause. It's the effect of not seeing the original cause. So you begin, we begin to see that suffering comes from the mind. It doesn't come from life. It doesn't come from our past. It doesn't come from our future. It doesn't come from anything but our argument, our resistance, our disagreement. And then there grows in each of us that sense of being fed up. This is a good thing. Sometimes in interviews, some of you will say, well, I'm fed up with this mind. I'm fed up. I think that's a good thing. Because there is a kind of way that you have to have reached your threshold of tolerance for it before you're ready to move on. Before you're ready to really seriously Consider other opportunities, other possibilities. The other thing that I think is very important is to understand that happiness is not in the opposite. That we don't find it in aversion to or running from anything. That if the gladdened heart is to be discovered, it must be discovered in the immediacy of all things, as Christina mentioned last night. 
finally we begin to see the difference between the unpleasant and the reaction to the unpleasant. We can begin to actually see what reality is offering and our argument with that, our resistance to it. When we see that, we're on, we, we become like bloodhounds. Oh, I got it now. I've got it. From that comes what I call the great turnaround. This brings forth the sincerity and willingness to really move into the difficult, to move into the contracted areas of ourselves. The willingness to go come what may. Come what may. At that point, that turnaround, that shift is so compelling. There's no stopping the yogi. It doesn't come from deep and cave-like mind states of samadhi, absorptions. It comes from seeing the truth of what's in front of our eyes. Why do I suffer? Who's suffering? Surely 2,500 years ago, the Buddha must have wondered those same things as he sat down, as he really pondered, not the theories and strategies of the day, which was to blame life and to try to develop some quality of consciousness so far separate from life that you don't even have to touch it, and therefore so dry that your heart can never open, something inside of him said, no, uh uh-uh, this is ridiculous. Maybe it's in the very thing that I'm avoiding. Maybe the pearl of wisdom. Maybe it is in the very thing which I am trying so desperately to counteract. And so he must have accepted responsibility for his own pain. And that's what he taught. That was his first sermon. That was the most important for him thing that he wanted to convey. And so when we come here, 25 centuries later, it is with that same intention, with that same commitment and sincerity. Let's see this thing. Let's use this week for what it really is supposed to mean its purpose, its intention. And if we, ha- we don't have to go far to feel the compelling nature of that inward pull, of that longing in our heart. All we have to do is invite an intention from that longing. And the intention from that longing is to see, to look. Wherever that takes me, I don't care. But let me look. Let me go there and see for myself. And so that is what we do here this week together. Hopefully we'll have fun in the course of that.
there'll be joy and the gladdened mind that will come out of that. But that's the journey towards that happiness. It's through it, all the obstacles, not in objection or resistance to them. So thank you for your attention tonight. And if we could sit for just a minute. So as you sit, how do you sit? With what commitment and sincerity? What do you really want from this practice? Do you want to be soothed? Or do you want to discover? Do you want to know the cause of the irritant or get over the irritant? Are we pointed in the right direction? Feel your heart's yearning, the longing, if you want a motivation. Because seeking comfort will never satisfy that longing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.